American Writers, 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at one small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my main source material. Uh, and in this episode, we'll be continuing our look at Jane Bowles's uh, short uh, body of fiction writing. Specifically, uh, in this episode, we'll be looking at her one play, the one play she, she wrote during her lifetime in in the summer house and we'll look at a handful of her short stories i think what she actually published was only her novel which we already looked at two serious ladies this play and i think seven stories in a small collection well those were published previously in various journals and in magazines and stuff and then there's a bunch of like sketches and stuff that that weren't published which we'll look at mostly in the next episode but we're not going to get through all her published stories in in this particular one now the cornerstone of of this episode will be uh, in the summer house this play and then two pieces that are actually tied to two serious ladies so it's um a guatemalan idol which is actually like the third part of two serious ladies but they took it out or you know actually paul bowles suggested that jane take out the guatemalan idol which would have been like chapter four of that book when <clears throat> it would have but was originally conceived of as three serious ladies so that's taken out. And then there's another little short story that was like a side quest within that Guatemalan idol that also got kind of cut out of that. So they're, you know, that they're tied, tied to two serious ladies thematically and in some of their plot. But um, now these stories are hard to kind of talk about because they really don't have much plot. I was actually searching through reviews of the play because there were a few revivals and, and you can see reviews of it. and. You know, no one ever talks about the plot so much because there really isn't much a plot. Really what that play is about is the interdynamic between between characters, between mothers and daughters and that play in particular. And then really going back to a theme of Two Serious Ladies is how does one achieve freedom and liberation uh, versus isolation, right? Because we saw a lot of isolation in Two Serious Ladies, but we also saw our characters kind of break free of that isolation, whether it was the isolation of being a, a rich spinster uh, or the isolation in that that's inherent in a in a traditional bourgeois marriage. Um, so that's that's really the theme in a lot of her work, and it is very fascinating. I, I think it's worth digging into. I think you should at least read Two Serious Ladies if you're interested in this era of, of writing. If you want a nice contrast, I think to Mary McCarthy's feminist writing, I think Jane Bowles goes at it so much more viscerally, so much more in terms of emotion and character. While, while Mary McCarthy was much more plot-driven and much more interested in, you know, I guess, politics, overt politics, Jane Bowles, if she was political, you know, it's almost like a lark. You know, she, I think she once said something like, I'm a communist, but she never actually read the communist literature. She wasn't that political. She just sort of joined the party because Paul Bowles joined it, and he also joined the party on a lark. So her politics are really, really under the surface, if they're there at all. She's just interested in people seeking 
liberation from, from some kind of confinement. And she really sees this confinement through various character interactions and place too. It's one thing I'm thinking more about as I reread re re some of these stories in this play is place is so important to this, right? Certainly it's very important in two series ladies where you have these different locations that can be liberating or confining. Um, this play, which I'm gonna start with in the summer house is, is about a place. And it's about a place that traps uh, one character in particular, but others as well. And it's about characters who really can't break free. And then the threat, the, the, the danger to that, that's presented by another character who enters in the story, who is a very different type, much more liberated. So as a foil between the characters and between, and the location versus opportunity and potential is really the heart of, of this story. Of course, in plays, unlike like in film and screenplays, you're really usually very confined in locations that you can use, right? Um, that's, you know, just the logistics of doing a play. You're often stuck with one scene, right? You don't, like in Doll's House, Ibsen, you never see what Nora does afterwards, right? This was the Chinese scholar Lu Xun's big question. What happens when Nora leaves home, right? But, you know, a play that's set all in a house, you know, you're not going to have that question asked. You really can't get into that because that's not really logistically how these how these plays work um, so anyways uh, yeah let's let's try to say a little bit more about in the summer house I, I'll try to I mean the plot there really isn't a plot I mean essentially you have two mother-daughter pairs and they they're foils for each other on the one hand the one first one we meet the ones who live in the summer house is is Gertrude and is her daughter Molly Molly I mean, Gertrude is actually maybe the main character in the story, but Molly is also a very, very important force. But Molly, although she has a boyfriend named Lionel, she just sort of hangs out in this summer house. You know, really, I think it's like literally in the back of the stage is where this house is, this, this, this is located. So if you were to watch it, I really was looking quite hard for a dramatization of this, you know, and, and but you can't, these are hard to find. I mean, maybe they're streaming services plays, but I couldn't find anything for this particular play. Now, while Molly kind of isolates herself and, and hides and, and kind of is comfortable in isolation, Gertrude is a much more overbearing figure and she's constantly trying to push Molly to, to break free of this. In fact, she has serious money problems. So Gertrude is, basically has two solutions to this money problem that she works out over the course of, of the play. The first, the first one we're introduced to is this plan to marry just a rich man, Mr. Solaris. In fact, this is like on the Mexican border, this is set. So um, there's, there's uh, international characters. It's something I didn't talk about so much explicitly in Two Serious Ladies, but pretty much all her fiction is international in its characterization. Um, I think that may come out of her expat experience. She spent time in Latin America, and she, of course, lived much of her life in Tangiers with Paul Bowles. So, she, you know, her own love life was international. So she's very comfortable talking about these cross-cultural connections. I think that's one reason you might want to check out her, her work if you're interested in that kind of global context of American writing and American literature. Uh, but her first plan is to marry this Mr. Solaris. Um, but also, eventually, she ends up taking a boarder, a, a girl named Vivian, and she helps with the money problems a little bit. And Vivian is this kind of revolutionary force in this rather static but conflicted relationship between Molly and, and Gertrude. Um, in fact, her relationship with her own mother 
is the opposite of Gertrude and Molly. Vivian is the exuberant one. She's the one who's seeking freedom. She's the radical figure. And her mother, uh, Mrs. Constance, is the much more meek one. So they're just sort of inverted. And Jane Bowles has a lot of fun playing with those, those um, contrasts. Now you see this contrast in the different dreams of, of Molly and, and Vivian. For instance, there's a scene where Vivian and Lionel and Molly are at the beach. This is actually the second scene. It's a two-act play, and I think altogether there are five scenes, maybe. Um, so it's not very long, but you know, I think it would be a full like two-hour play if it was performed. I'm not sure, um, but it's a quick read, as, as most plays are. Um, like Molly's best idea she has for her future is basically to marry Lionel, but there's really no sense that she's going to break free of the environment she's in. Um, Vivian, she wants to open up a restaurant and she has much bigger goals of moving around, of, of, of experiencing a lot of things, of going to different places. But Molly's dreams are just much, much more, more limited. Now, this is really hard on Mrs. Constance, this, her, the, the, her daughter, and her daughter's kind of aloofness from her because, you know, Mrs. Const Constable, sorry, Mrs. Constable is Vivian's mother, is... Is, is much more like Molly in just her meekness and lack of dreams and lack of vision for herself. And the fact that the people in her life didn't have the, that same vision for themselves and, and saw themselves on a bigger canvas, she feels very isolated. Like she's talking at one point, I think it's to Molly, maybe Gertrude, no, I think it's a scene with Molly. She says, they never belonged to each other, my husband and Vivian. They never belonged to me ever, but I couldn't admit it. I hung on hard to the bitter end. When they died, nothing was left. No memories. Everything vanished. All the panic, all the strain. I hardly remember my life. They never loved me. I didn't love them. My heart had fake roots. When the strain was over, they dried up. They shriveled and snapped, and my heart was left empty. There was no blood left in my heart. They never loved me, Molly. Your mother. It's not too late. She doesn't. Now, you'll notice she's talking about Vivian as she's dead. Vivian dies off screen between... I think it's between Act 1 and 2, and basically it's, it's implied that Molly, like, murdered her um, because it's not, even, it's not even clear to me why she does it outside of that she seems to be such a foil to her that she really can't handle it in her life. But what this, this murder, heavily implied murder, allows Molly to do is essentially take on Mrs. Constable as a, as a bit of a surrogate mother, and you start to see her movie even farther away from Gertrude as she, she kind of replaces Vivian as Mrs. Constable's daughter. And uh, it's just a better fit, I guess, um, but it just is another form of self-isolation. It doesn't, doesn't, like the one force here that really could spring this very, very static, very banal life that she's in into something new is, would have been Vivian, but she turns her back on it, um, you know, in a violent way. And anyways, the, there's just different scenes and different conversations. But I think the heart of this play is this disconnect between uh, the emotional relationship between mothers and daughters and how they're, they're different dreams and, you know, their, their just inability to really t to match up and how this can be very alienating and isolating. Um, but in the case of someone like Vivian, maybe there's some potential in that, some revolutionary potential in that she's the one character here who seems possible of breaking free of, of where she's at. Um, now, I've heard many reviewers seem to suggest that, 
in the summer house is very autobiographical for Jane Bowles. So she is, is in here. It's like about her relationship with her mother, right? I don't know enough about Jane Bowles to say which relationship. I'm guessing the Molly Gertrude one is, that's because that's the main plot line, you know, but that, that she's kind of living out her own relationships in these novels and these stories. We've already seen that in two series ladies, certainly with the Frida Copperfield story where she's able to kind of live out her life. And, and you know, the Bulls were such a infamous open relationship, infamous for their, their bisexuality. I mean, both of them like were very, very open about who they were. And it comes off, at least in her writing, I haven't read Paul Bull's stuff, but I wouldn't be surprised if you see that same kind of openness about the, you know, his relationship and his sexualities in, in that novel. Certainly, Paul Bull's encouraged Jane Bull's writing, which, which was very open. If you remember, Two Series Ladies was, was appreciated by Paul Bull's, but not by her lover and not by her mother, because mostly because it was digging up too much of this dirt from, from their past. Okay, so then we have the Guatemalan Idol. So this was published in 1944, the same year as Two Serious Ladies, although it was written earlier in the 40s. It was written as part of Two Serious Ladies. Now, I'm not sure how this would have been integrated into that story. Um, now, of course, the Frida Copperfield story seems to have, on the surface, no connection to the, to the, the Christina Gehring story that we see in chapters one and three. But Jane Bowles integrates them by having them meet at a party and meet at the end. And maybe something similar to that would have happened, or this would have just been a totally a, a side quest. I, I think either case, you know, Jane Bowles could have done either because, it's, again, these, these aren't about plot so much as they're about interrelations and, and emotions and, and confinement and guilt and... And, and liberation, sexual liberation is of course a big part of Jane Bowles' approach here. Um, so this story, although it's called a Guatemalan idol, it's like these characters are very anxious and very full of guilt and full of regret and, and they seem to be missing, you know, each other's points of view and what they want. Uh, I think that you see a lot of that here where, you know, Anyways, I'll, I'll try to describe what happens in this story a little bit. Um, so we have an unnamed traveler. So in that sense, it kind of parallels uh, the Copperfield story where we have an international traveler from America coming to, in this case, it's Guatemala, and then interacting with the locals, you know, sexually and romantically. And, and in this case, uh, this foreign traveler, who again, who he's not named at all, he's just the, the traveler, uh, ends up, well, he's staying at this place called the Penzian Espinanza, that's Espinosa. And I guess it's like a Penzan, it's like kind of like a hotel or a boarding house or something. And um, he ends up with this relationship with this Senora Ramirez, whose dream is to kind of open up a, a dress shop. And this foreign traveler is rich enough to, at one point, he boasts that I could help you open up like 10 or 50 of these of these houses so he sees the relationship in much more clinical i guess financial um, almost like a commercial relationship which is maybe what many travelers tend to do when they when they go abroad they don't necessarily appreciate the emotional uh, aspect of the people they interact with they they, they see you know, and in fact that's part of the that's part of the fault of the way tourism is right i mean if you remember the two series ladies the copperfield storyline Literally, the women she interacts with are, are sex workers. And so it is, there is this kind of 
commercialization in it. And in fact, this little story that was taken out of this called, um, what was it called? The Day in the Open is all about sex workers and that's a totally commercial interaction as well. And I'm not sure how that fits into this story exactly, um, but apparently that was once part of this Guatemalan idol. So there's basically, this woman, Senora Ramirez, ends up having sex with two different men. Uh, one's a boy and one's, a, one's, a, one's this traveler. The other one she runs into is this young boy who was injured by like a, a nail. You know, so he has a bandage and he has a snake, but the snake is killed, which I think maybe has some religious significance, perhaps, if, if you want to think of it that way. Um, but the snake is killed, so that's like the killing of original sin, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but sin is kind of overhanging all this and guilt uh, overhangs that. But she ends up with him in an afternoon and she seduces him um, at, by the end of the story as well. So we have a few other characters in this story as well, besides Miss Ramirez and this traveler and this young um, injured boy. There's also uh, Ramirez's daughter, Lilina, and she's actually the one who, who like buys the snake with this young boy, Enrique. Um, and then you have Consuelo Ramirez, Lilina's older sister, and a senior, Senorita Cordaba. And those two women, uh, Consuelo Ramirez and Senorita Corbato also have interest in this American, emotional interest in this, in this American traveler. Now, one of the more interesting aspects of this, of this story, even though the, the third serious lady, if this had been part of the story, would have been just this um, Senora Ramirez. But we get a good look at the traveler's feeling of guilt about, about what was essentially like a one-night stand with with Senora Ramirez, uh, quote, he had again slept, he again spent the night with Senora Ramirez and he was wondering whether or not his mother would read this in his eyes when he returned. He had never done anything like this before. His behavior until now had never been without precedent. He had felt like a two-headed monster, so he had somehow slipped from the real world into this other world, the world that he had always imagined as a little boy to be inhabited by assassins and orphans and children whose mothers went to work. He put his head in his hand and wondered if he could ever forget some Senor, Senora Ramirez. He remembered having read that the careers of many men had been ruined by women, who, because they had a certain physical stranglehold over them, made it impossible for them to get away. These women, he knew, were always bad, and they were never Americans, nor was he certain that they resemble Senora Ramirez. It was terrible if they had done something he was certain none of his friends had ever done before him, nor would do after him. This experience, he knew, would have to remain a secret, and... Nothing made him feel more ill than having a secret. He liked to imagine that he and a group of men he had considered to be his friends discoursed freely on all things that was in their hearts and souls. He was beginning to talk to women in this free way too. He talked to them a great deal and he urged his friends to do likewise. He realized that he and Senor Ramirez never spoke and this horrified him. He shuddered to himself and said, we are like two gorillas. He had been, it's true, with one or two prostitutes, but he had never taken them to his own bed nor had he stayed with them longer than an hour. Also, they had been curly-haired, blonde American girls recommended to him by his friends. Um, but he does eventually kind of justify this relationship as basically being meaningless, and that's how he evades his guilt, is by basically separating himself from it. Um, for me, th that was the most interesting section of this, of this, of this short story. Um, this, this potential chapter in, in Two Serious Ladies. Um, so that's that. Now, A Day in the Open, also published in 1944, is another like, discarded 
remnant of, of... So how does this connect to a Guatemalan idol? Well, it's... The, the main character here is a guy named Senora Ramirez. And he's seeking out these prostitutes. And it's mentioned that his wife and two daughters are staying at a, a you know, at this, this, this place that we were introduced to in a Guatemalan idol. So this would have been like a, a side story within that narrative dealing with this husband who we never see in a Guatemalan idol. So it's, um, well, the two main characters besides the Senora Ramirez is, is Julia and Inez. And Inez, they're both prostitutes. And now Julia is in pain all the time and she's got some kind of tumor or something in her stomach that's keeping her in bed. She's very much a confined character, a bit like the, the main character in, in, in the summer house. And Inez is more interested in kind of going out in the world. She's also more business oriented a little bit. Julia's, you know, she spends most of the, the story kind of griping about this pain in her chest. And she ends up getting hurt again by the end of the story. Which is kind of um, a little bit comical in a, in, a, in a dark way. So anyways, essentially their pimp tells them that this man, Senor Ramirez, and some others are want to take him out to a picnic. And he tells them, make sure you bring him back here, because I guess that's where the real money is going to be made if they bring him back to the, to the brothel or the bar or whatever. And so they go out to meet with the Senora Ramirez, and they have various chit-chatting. And kind of one of the central events in this story is they're playing this silly little game there, like where they're trying to throw things into a, into a, you know, into a like throw rocks or something into a into a target or something and then the men say like they'd be better if they're naked so the girls have to take off their clothes of course they're sex workers they do what they're what they're asked and but by the end of the scene you know julia falls i think she's being carried by senor ramirez and she you know they fall and she hurts her head and and she's bleeding everywhere and they have to go back and so they have to go back. The men promise, or like Senor Ramirez promises to come back later. Um, but, you know, the, the day is kind of ruined. And the last scene is Inez saying, I'm going to go out to the movies, and Julia stays in. So we got that. Nothing's really changed for these characters through this day, day the, after this day in the open. Julia is still basically confined to her bed, to the indoors, unless she's forced to go out. And, and, and Inez is more interested in in the broader world, more materialistic, more, more worldly. So that's the story of Day in the Open. So along with a Guatemalan idol, it kind of fits together with two serious ladies in, in a way. I don't know how it would have fit together as, as one novel. It would be interesting to, to have that uh, reconstructed, but um, it's a fun little story. And it's, again, the plot doesn't really matter that much. It's, it's about the characters, their interactions, and their and in most of these stories, it's the search for freedom by these characters that is uh, most clear on Jane Bowles's mind. All right, next. Uh, a well, we got a couple actual poems here. I don't know where these were published. Well, they're both published in 1942. Um, one called Two Skies, I, I didn't really know what to make of. It seems more just an impressionistic image of, of, of someone walking on the beach. Uh, or the devil walking on the beach. So maybe some temptation, some guilt, things like that there. But uh, an easier to grasp one is called Song of an Old Woman, which I really, really love this poem. It's about is an old woman who regrets having been a coward her whole life and not doing what she wants to do. 
Quote, I, oh, I am sad for never knowing courage, and I am sad for the stifling of fear. Closer to the sun now and farther from the heart, I think that my end must be near. I linger too long at a picnic, because a picnic's gayer than me. And I hold to the edge of the table, because the table's stronger than me. And I lean on anyone's shoulder, because anyone's warmer than me. Oh, I am sad for never knowing courage, and I'm sad for the stifling of fear. Closer to the sun now and farther from the heart, I think that my end must be near. Um, so, you know, it's very much like Molly when she grows up, I could think, could imagine. Molly from In the Summer House might say something like this song for, of, of the old woman. Um, so after that, we, we got a little, little play. It's actually a puppet play. It was performed as a puppet play called The Quarreling Pair. There's only two characters in it, Harriet and Rhoda. And my understanding is that this is supposed to be a, almost like a re-dramatization of a bicker of, 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 of a fight she had with, with her lover, Helvita, at some point. But it's basically just these two characters you know, fighting about banal things like milk and, and stuff. Now, both sing a song over the course of this little bickering when the other one was off stage, which is kind of, it's kind of nice, but it's, it's just a fun little comical sketch of two people bickering about banal, boring, um, everyday, everyday things. But maybe the thematic heart of this little play, it's only four pages, it's really just a short scene, is Harriet complained to the other one, Rhoda, for being basically um, too dependent on her. Quote, it's because you have no self-sufficiency. If I wasn't around, you don't, you wouldn't have leisure to worry. You're a lost soul when I'm not around. You don't even have the pep to worry about the outside when I'm not around. Not that the outside loses by that. End quote. And again, I think of Molly or I think of, of Julia in A Day in an Open. Just characters who are stuck, isolated, locked in a place. And really can't break free of that. And the contrast is with characters who are capable of, of breaking free um, a little bit or in some way, even if they end up unfulfilled by the end. All right. Um, so one more story um, in this episode. It's called Plain Pleasures. Originally published in Harper's Bazaar in 1946. It is... It's really good. This is my favorite, I think, of these stories. Uh, it's about a rape. Um, and it's about a kind of a lost potential relationship, I suppose. So we have two people. One living, they're living basically in tenements. And on the upper floor is Alva Perry. She's of Scotch-Spanish descent. She's already 40 years old. And then below that is John Drake. These are both people who are basically, they live their lives in this tenement and at work. They really don't have much of a life outside of that. And Mr. Drake helps Mrs. Perry like with her potatoes, like with her groceries. And they end up getting into a conversation where they talk about, you know, he asked her, do you like plain pleasures? And she doesn't quite know what that means. And... No, she asks him if she likes if he likes plain pleasures. It's she who asks. She initiates it. And he doesn't really know what she asks. And she defines it this way. Uh, plain pleasures like the ones that come without crowds or fancy food. Plain pleasures like this potato bake instead of dancing and whiskey and bands. Like a picnic, but not the kind with a thousand extra things that get thrown out in the ditch because they don't get eaten up. I've seen grown people throw away cakes because they were too lazy to wrap them up and take them home. Have you seen that kind of thing? I do like plain pleasures. And she goes, and this is basically the beginning of a potential relationship between these two. 
And later on, they decide to go out to dinner together. And she gets there early. She gets to the dinner early, or he gets he comes a little bit late, but she gets really drunk uh, before he even shows up. She's down in the the drinks before he comes, and when he comes, she's already pretty pretty far gone. She she basically thought she was going to be stood up, right? And she gets very very drunk. Now, Alva Perry had actually gone to this restaurant with I think it was her ex husband, so the owner of the of the place knows her. And she knows that on the upper stage, there's like some bedrooms and stuff. So uh, she gets really drunk and eventually she just retires to the up, upstairs to, to sleep one off. And he, you know, the Mr. Drake asks the owner about this and the owner explains that, you know, she went up to, 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 to sleep. Um, and so he leaves. And then Alva Perry wakes up the next day naked having essentially been raped and it's it's worth reading this scene because it if you if you it's it's hard to maybe notice and it is kind of open to interpretation what really happened but it seems that the proprietor of this restaurant raped her at some point in the in the night so uh, this is how the story ends the next morning mrs perry awakened a little after sunrise thanks to her excellent constitution she did not feel very sick but she lay motionless on the bed looking around her at the walls for a long time Slowly, she remembered that this room she was lying in was above the restaurant, but she did not know how she had gotten there. She remembered the dinner with Mr. Drake and not much of what she had said to him. It did not occur to her to blame her for him for her present circumstance. She was not hysterical at finding herself in a strange bed, because although she was a very tense and nervous woman, she possessed a great depth of emotion, and only certain things concerned her personally. She felt very happy, and she thought of her uncle who had passed out of the conversation 15 years ago when he had walked around the town all the morning without knowing where he was. She smiled. After resting a little while, she got out of the bed and clothed herself. She went into the hall and found the staircase, and she descended with bated breath and a fast-beating heart because she was too eager to get back down, so eager to get back down to the restaurant. It was flooded with sunshine and smelled of meat and sauce, and she walked a little unsteadily down the aisle between the rows of wooden booths and tables. The tables were all bare and scrubbed clean. She looked anxiously from one to the other, hoping to select booths that they had sat in, but she was unable to choose among them. The tables were all identical. In a moment, uh, this anonymity, in, anonymity served only to heighten her tenderness. John Drake, she whispered. My sweet John Drake. Um, and that's how the story ends. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of this relationship is kind of hopeless, but she, she, she has this regret. And, you know, of course, it ended pretty horribly for her. Tonight. But I really like this story of just two people trying to start something both in their their isolated worlds and and it, it kind of becoming a horrible disaster just through through happenstance and, and bad luck and 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 the fact that there was a guy willing to take advantage of of a, a drunk woman at her at, at his restaurant so anyways that's plain pleasures so um yeah i think that'll be it that's actually a little bit more than 100 pages that the stories um fulfill mostly it, the Guatemalan Idol and In the Summer House fill up most of that. Now, there's a little bit more to deal with with Jane Bowles. Uh, I do think there is a handful of other published stories. I think three more stories that she published and then, then other fragments. Um, in fact, I think that I mentioned one of the fragments with, uh, you know, in earlier, which was kind of an epilogue to a Guatemalan idol that didn't end up in the original story. So I don't know if I'll talk about all of those because some of them are quite short, 
But at the very least, I'll look at her, the rest of her published stories in the next episode and, and kind of finish up with my overall thoughts about Jane Bowles. Again, like for me, it's a very, very uh, difficult to kind of get a grasp on, on what she's trying to say. It's not a very clear thematic thing. It's, it's often very hard to put this in a historical context um, to, to dissect in a historicist way outside of looking at Jane Bowles' old life and experiences and international living and being an expat and all that. Um, which is all pretty obvious. I don't know, but I really like her stories. I'm enjoying them, and I think they are a lot of fun and a nice challenge for me. So we're going to finish up with Jane Bulls in the next episode, um, and, that, and that'll be that. So as always, thanks for listening, but let me know what you think of these stories if you read them. You probably have a better grasp on them than I do, I, I hope. Um, I'm sure there's people out there who are big Jane Bulls fans. I would love to hear from you, um, you know, if you have any advice on how to interpret her works, anything you want to add to this conversation, please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or best yet, just leave your comments below on Podbean and then everyone can see them directly. So that will be it for now. Um, I'll see you next time with my conclusion to this mini-series on, on Jane Bowles. Uh, thanks for listening.